0: Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm Samantha Fry, the CEO of the Illinois Association of Medicaid Health Plans, also known as IMHIP. In this podcast, we focus on all things surrounding the Illinois Medicaid Managed Care Program. Welcome to the Sam Says Podcast. I'm the Sam and Sam Says, and today I'm so happy to welcome back our regular guest, our dear friend and policy expert. I call her my Medicaid guru, Jill Hayden, director at Sellers Dorsey, to discuss what will surely be an ongoing topic of conversation, the end of the public health emergency, and big deal, the beginning of redeterminations. Jill, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Sam. It is great to be here.
0: And uh, yes, this is a hot topic, so excited to get started. And hot topic is like an understatement. Um, I've definitely heard from people who say like, this is essentially the biggest thing to happen to Medicaid since either the Medicaid expansion authorized under the Affordable Care Act or Medicaid itself. Like this is huge. And, you know, I'm a policy nerd at heart. And there's, you know, there's just so much going on. And so can we just sort of start with we know redeterminations are going to turn back on we haven't done them as a state or as a country i guess that's important to note our as a country since march of 2020 So correct Yes.
1: right like so when you say um it's a big deal because it's you know the states have really been anticipating this announcement for almost 3 years now and so now that we finally have a little more information um there's a lot of, of work that needs to be done so um maybe it'll help if i just start with a little bit of background and some level setting on sort of what this means and how we got here Um, So, when the pandemic started, Congress passed the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, and in that act, they actually provided additional federal funds to states um, in the amount of 6.2% above their normal federal matching funds that they get for Medicaid um, if states agreed to keep their Medicaid members on the rolls during the public health emergency. So, We call it continuous enrollment, basically, where states have just not removed anyone from the Medicaid rolls um, during the pandemic uh, for obvious reasons, um, since it is a health-related public health emergency. Um, And so what's been happening is that the Secretary of Health and Human Services has been renewing the the public health emergency every 90 days. And since this continuous, continuous enrollment is associated with the public health emergencies, state really states had a good idea of sort of you know another three months, we're gonna have to keep people on the rolls, um, but they've also been anticipating the end of the public health emergency and sort of what that's gonna mean for them. And so um, coincidentally, the last declaration of the public health emergency for 90 days was going to end in April, Anyway, um, it would have ended around April 11th. And so states have been preparing just in case um, if the public health emergency was gonna end in April, sort of what that would look like and how they would restart the redetermination process uh, for their Medicaid members. So we had a little insight um, into Illinois' thinking in terms of what they plan to do to restart those renewals and the timelines associated with that if it happened in April. Um, but what happened in December is that Congress passed new legislation. Um, it was basically the um, the omnibus appropriations bill that de-linked the, um, the continuous enrollment requirement in that additional FMAP, or federal matching funds for Medicaid, from the continuous enrollment requirement. And they set a date certain of April 1st. So now we know what the date is, and we know when states can begin the process of completing those redeterminations for their Medicaid members. So that's where we are today. Um, And we know a little bit about what Illinois' plan is going to be.
0: Yes, and I just want to, like, emphasize a few things. So first and foremost, 6.2%, like, that doesn't sound very, like, very much, but when you're talking about a multibus billion dollar program, 6.2% is real money and it makes a real impact. And so every state, like no state um, early on, like gave that up. Everybody bought into it. And I think a few now might have sort of walked away from it and wanted to start a little earlier. Um, But that would be like in this year or really recent, like every, that was enticing enough that everybody bought in. Am I we're calling that, right, Jill?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there was a lot of concern from states as to, you know, it, it was only supposed the, the additional federal matching funds was only supposed to go through the quarter in which the public health emergency ends. So if, you know, if we were looking at April 11th, that means the, the 6.2% enhanced match would have only gone through the end of June. And so then, you know, it's basically up to the states to to cover that additional cost of those Medicaid enrollees that are still left on the rolls. Um, Which they're going to do anyway, but it's nice to have that additional support from the federal government associated with that continuous enrollment. What they decided to do in December in the new um, congressional package is really to just ratchet it down. So every quarter in 2023, that 6.2% gets a little bit less until it goes to zero at the end of the year. And that provides the states with just a little bit more support um, in terms of federal resources to continue this redeterminations process um, for those individuals who are still on the rolls.
0: And now I think like, so that's the finance piece, right? Like that's what it means to the state and to our budget and to taxpayers. Um, we've got a little bit of support. Now we're still doing redeterminations after we've lost the support. So our roles are still bigger than they normally are, but it's, it's sort of like a compromise. It feels like from the outsider looking in, like it the Fed stepped up some and they shifted the burden to the state some too right exactly
1: and i you know i think the thing that the states are struggling with is they don't know exactly how many people will be left on the rolls after the redetermination process is completed i mean the last thing we want is for anyone who is still eligible to get removed from the rolls um you know for basic procedural reasons like they didn't uh, fill out the paperwork or get it in time or whatever um, but there will be those individuals who are no longer eligible, you know, whether it's due to income or other things that, you know, happened in their life during the pandemic um, that will cause them to be removed from the role. So that's sort of a question that's out there. I don't know that we have any good estimates in the state of Illinois as to what that's gonna look like. We just sort of have to go through the process and um and, and see what what the numbers look like at the end of the year.
0: Yeah. And I think that moves us to exactly where we want to go, which is like. The member impact, the human impact. You know, this is going to impact our families, our neighbors. I mean, this is going to be big because it's substantial. And I think it's important to note pre March 2020, Illinois Medicaid was an incredibly dynamic program. And it really differed from the stereotype of once you're on Medicaid, you're on Medicaid. That's just simply not true. We used to have, on average, at least 40,000 new members come on. And forty thousand new member or and forty thousand existing members leave the program because they you know they got a new job they they got a raise they started working more hours their situation changed their lives improved and they no longer um, were eligible for Medicaid or needed Medicaid. And so we know that we know since we haven't been de- doing redetermination since March twenty twenty, there's a large swath of folks that just are no longer eligible because maybe they were unemployed at one point. But now they're employed. Maybe they were only working part time, but now they're working full time. This is great news. Um, this is great news that their their income is stronger. Um, and what we want to do for those folks who don't have empl- um, don't have employer sponsored health coverage or maybe health care coverage from a spouse, um, from a spouse or a partner or any other sort of resource is we want to have to the best of our ability a warm handoff to an exchange product um, on healthcare.gov in Illinois, so that. They don't lose coverage, their coverage just shifts and there are subsidies for that. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in the future on this on the podcast, but then there's the next group. And we also know that there are tons and tons of members still eligible. And when we used to do redeterminations, pre-March 2020, we saw regularly folks would lose coverage, not because they weren't eligible, but because they didn't get the envelope because they moved, because they sent the envelope in, but they missed the deadline, because they sent the envelope in and human error at um, the state agency's office, right? Like we're all people. And so, you know, just unfortunately stuff happens. And so it was a really complex process. And we did see folks, a a good amount of folks lose coverage who would then later come back on because they were actually eligible. They just lost coverage because of administrative boxes, um, which are important and you have to make sure somebody's so eligible, but when we're dealing with paper and that's what this is, it's a lot of paper, um, mistakes happen and errors are made all over the place. And so can we just sort of talk about what that's going to look like, this big endeavor from the state?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think that's the fear, right, is that, you know, we used to have this dynamic process and people were used to, you know, receiving that information and having to submit it in, in a certain time. And, um, you know, we haven't gone through that process in three years. So in addition to people just not having exposure to what that process looks like, you know, somebody that came into Medicaid maybe never went through that process of redetermination ever in their life. And so they'll have to, you know, go through that process. Um and, and, you know, in three years, people move, obviously, right? People move a lot and so have their address changed. And so, you know, I think Illinois has done a good job of getting the word out in terms of updating your address. They really have engaged with stakeholders um, in getting the word out that, you know, this is going to be happening. It's coming soon. Make sure you get into the system and you update those, those addresses so that when the process does happen... Um, You know, we can ensure that you receive that information, but now we're here. Um, And so did everybody do that? Did they take us seriously? Probably not. There's probably a lot more information that needs to be updated to ensure that people receive that that those application um, packets in the mail. So that's one concern, um, you know, that we have to work through. But, you know, we sort of know what what the process is going to look like. So uh, we know that. States basically have 14 months to complete this process. And we have known all along that Illinois intends to use the anniversary date of the individual as sort of the, um, to determine who gets a packet and when, and when they need to be redetermined. And so what Illinois plans to do is they intend to start the mailing process. uh, April 27th will be the first mailing for individuals whose anniversary date in Medicaid enrollment is June 1st. And on that packet, it will say, you need to complete this and return it to the state by June 1st. Now, that's the message that they want stakeholders to stick to, that it has to be in by June 1st. But what you and I know, and people probably listening to this podcast would be interested in, is that there's a little bit of a grace period. Um, So we know that if they get the packet in by the middle of June, by the 15th, um, they're probably not going to be disenrolled, that they'll have a little bit more time for the state to accept that and um, acknowledge that they received it on time. If they don't receive it, Um, The state um, will be disenrolling that first uh, round of individuals by the end of June, which means come July 1, they will lose that coverage. Um, And so the message needs to be update your address so that you can get the packet. Once you get the packet, fill it out, complete it, and return it. Whatever that looks like, you could be calling the 1-800 number to do that, um, or you could be going into Manage My Case, uh, which is the digital platform that the state has to update that information, or to your point, Sam, you could be actually mailing a physical copy of that paperwork in to the state, but as long as you do that by the middle of the month, you should be okay in terms of um, getting re-enrolled or reinstated for that following month, and that's the best case scenario that we can help for at this point.
0: Yeah, and I think let's like walk through those sort of options. I'm gonna call them the gold, the silver and the bronze. So gold is set up a manage my case right now or help your patients or members or whomever, help the folks you work with set up a manage my case. That's that's gold. And then once they have a manage my case, when it's their anniversary date and they'll be, you can call and find out when's your date. Or if you have a manage my case, you'll be able to see it in there, but you'll be able to see what's your date, what's your month. Um, Once it's your month, you can go in and like just click things pretty quick and send in your redetermination really very easily is my understanding. That's number one. And I will flag we've historically had an issue with management case where you couldn't create one if they couldn't find your, confirm your identity online. And that would be like, maybe you don't have credit or like, you know, maybe you don't remember the house you lived in when, you you know, five years ago and you just check the wrong box, right? Like it gets complicated. Life is busy, guys. Um, There's a manual paper way to confirm your identity and set up a management case. And it's like pretty straightforward. And my understanding is that's going really quick. So that's like learn something, like to learn about that process too is key. The next step, the next, like the silver approach is when you get your paperwork. So you didn't set up a management case or for whatever reason you can't, or you're running into issues. You can Either when you get your paperwork or you know you're up in, I'll use June for this example, but whatever month, you can call the DHS call center and you can complete your redetermination over the phone and you don't have to worry about it, you know, the mail. And so that is, that is our silver option. Our bronze option skip get that paperwork, fill it out and send it in. Um, And why that's bronze is you're dealing with paper. And so, you know, you're gonna be dealing with the post office. I don't know about you, but I'm still getting like just weird returns. I'm getting holiday cards returned to me like yesterday um, that I sent out like the day after Thanksgiving. So, Just, you know, interesting things with the post office. Then you're dealing with, you know, DHS um, centers and their opening of the mail. And just the opportunity, I always say the more people touch one thing, the more likelihood that something just sort of goes awry. Um, And so that's why it's bronze. It's still a medal, still gets you there. But manage my case is gold, calling in a silver, sending in the paperwork, that's bronze. Um, Any other opportunities from your, you know, Jill, I know we will be talking about this all year because I think once we start to see it too, we're going to just know, I mean, we're just going to have lessons learned throughout this. I think it's going to be iterative. How we think it's going to go today versus what we're talking about in August or September is probably going to be different. We're going to learn lessons. Um, But are there opportunities you know, things we can learn from other states as we sort of embark on this massive undertaking? Well, I would say that there's a couple bright spots in the conversation.
1: Um, One is there is an opportunity for some retro eligibility adjustments so that if someone does get disenrolled, Um, and it was for procedural reasons, they didn't return the paperwork in time or what have you, Um, they can be reinstated back into Medicaid and into their health plan within that 90-day period of of disenrollment. And so, again, that is not the preferable (laughs) approach to this because any retroactivity causes all kinds of problems for the member, for providers trying to bill, for continuum of care, um, and really, you know, care coordination perspective um, for that individual. So it is an option, um, but it is definitely not, not the preferable option. The other bright spot, though, I would say, is that Illinois has done a good job of increasing the number of applications that it can process through what's called ex parte, um, which basically means that the state can go into its own electronic systems and verify member information, income taxes, you know, what have you, um, to determine that this individual is still eligible for Medicaid and they do not need to do anything. They can just process that automatically. Um, they're up to about 30 to 40% of applications are done that way um, now, which is great news. And the other good news is that they have been doing that through the throughout the public health emergency. So those individuals have been able to be kept up to date um, in their in their applications, even though no one's been removed from the roles, the state has been proactive in, in keeping up to date those ex parte um, applications. So that's that's good news. The other good news is that we've seen a lot more, um we've seen a lot more guidance from federal CMS that's allowing more partnerships with the managed care organizations. Um, a lot of partnerships between the state Medicaid agencies and the plans, really um, encouraging the plans to engage proactively with their members. Um, to make sure that they complete this process. So one, from an updating address perspective, getting the word out that they need to do that, and actually taking address information from the plans to provide to the state to update those addresses. And then secondly, once they know when their renewal date is coming up, they're actually encouraging the plans to do that outreach to their member to say, hey, your renewal date is coming up, how can we help? whether it's a transfer to the call center or you know, how to get into Manage My Case or just to be on the lookout for your um, your packet. Um, in addition to that, they're also providing regular updates to the plans on what the status is with those members. So um, a file that says, you know, this member's due date is coming up, a file that says, hey, they didn't return their paperwork and another file that says they've been disenrolled. And in all of those cases, um, the plan can reach out um, and work with that member to get that paperwork submitted. If they've been disenrolled for for a procedural reason, um, they didn't get the paperwork in, all of the managed care plans can do that. Um, And to your point earlier, if... Um, if they were disenrolled because they're no longer eligible for Medicaid, um, plans that also operate on the exchange can work with those members as well to help them transition over there and find an affordable uh, plan for that scenario as well. So, you know, those are all very positive um, approaches to solving this problem and really working, again, that partnership between the plans and the state. And um, it's nice to see that develop. Absolutely. And and
0: those are those are big, big deals. Like we've had, like, I'll just say the address thing for a long time. We've known the Medicaid health plans have better addresses than each of us. Like we've known that. It's because when you move, like, I don't think of all the people, like, I have to tell about my movement. I I, I tell the post office and then I sort of forget um, after that, like, unless it's like an actual utility. But you know who I tell, like when I pick up a farm, like when I pick up my prescription drugs? Like they say, oh, is that your address or your doctor's office? Is that your address? Oh no, no, I moved. Here's my new address. Well, the plans work with our providers and we get those new addresses, but historically we've never had a way to say, hey, HFS. Like we know and that, you know, Jane moved. Like we have a new address for Jane. Um, now we're going to be able to get HFS that address. And assuming that the members confirmed it, which is how we do it, we sort of outreach and say, Jane, we've heard your new address is this and we need it for you know, maintaining your healthcare coverage. Is that new address correct? And if, if Jane responds like, yes, it is, then we can let HFS know this is Jane's new address and we track the date. And there, there's a lot of more complications, but that's going to be a big deal for this. But my hope is that we can continue this throughout, because it matters when we talk about health equity. It matters when we talk about various quality initiatives and we're looking at our data for our data to be clean and for us to know where people actually are. And the address is like where somebody lives. That's how HFS assigns both the health plan they're enrolled in sometimes, but also the doctor that they um, serve as their PCP if they haven't actively selected one. And what if they don't live in their old address and all of a sudden you're giving them a doctorate on the street, but now that's like, you know, 40 minutes from where they currently live. Like this just improves the program. And so that's one of the bright spots for my perspective. I could go on and on about this. I know you and I will go on and on about this, Jill, but well, thank yes. you, just thank you for keep helping me keep this all in my head organized because it's complicated for me and educating our listeners. And more importantly, I think. We're all gonna work together to make sure that our neighbors and our communities understand all of this and, and, and don't get confused by all the moving pieces.
1: Yeah, it's an extremely important topic. Like you said, everybody's sort of been waiting for it and here it is. And so as we go through this process and there's lessons learned and things that your audience needs to be updated on, I am more than happy to come back and have that conversation with you.
0: Oh, Thank you, Jill. And to our listeners, to learn more about what I'm Hip is doing and to listen to other interesting podcasts like this one, we encourage you to visit our website at imhip.org. And of course, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Samantha Olds-Fry, the Sam and Sam Says. As always, thanks for joining us. And until next time, be well and stay safe.